In this episode, Sao Mailangi, a young daughter of Fina Ulukalala, falls ill. He pleads with the gods to spare her life, but Sao Mailangi's condition shows no improvement, and unexpectedly, Ulukalala's health suddenly declines. Mariner witnesses and documents the funerary customs in Tonga during those days. Welcome to the Tokyo Gamea podcast. Let's start the show. Before we continue with the story, let's do a quick recap. In the last episode, Dupo Malohi, once an enemy of Fina Urukalala, performs the ceremonial rites of Hulowifi and seeking forgiveness from Fina Urukalala so that he can retire in Hapai with his adopted brother Tupotoa. Forgiveness is granted under the condition that Tupotoa keeps a close eye on Tupomalohi. Shortly after Tupomalohi and his followers departed for Hapai, Finau's youngest daughter, her name was Sao Mailangi, which in the Samoan language means descended from the sky. She was about six or seven years of age, and she fell sick, on which occasion she was removed from her father's house to another, inside a fencing consecrated to Taliai Tupo, the patron god of the Hau. Almost every morning a hog was killed, dressed, and presented before the house as an offering to the god that he might spare her life for the sake of Finau. On these occasions, one or the other of the Mataapules, and sometimes two or three in succession, made an address to the invoked divinity, for he had no priest, to the following purpose. Here thou seest assembled Finau and his chiefs, and the principal Mataapules of thy favored land. Thou seest humble before thee. We pray thee not to be merciless, but spare the life of the woman for the sake of her father, who has always been attentive to every religious ceremony. Oh, really, has he? Hmm... So usually uh, in those days, a temple or whatever the consecrated space is dedicated to a god would have some kind of a priest there, a taula. And interestingly, in this book, uh, or in this part of the book, it mentions that Taliai Tupo, who was the patron god of Fina Ulkalala, did not have a taula. And I wonder why that is, because it's not um, explained in the book. So hopefully we can crowdsource with our audience. And if anyone knows, uh, just let me know and we'll talk about it. So uh, continuing with the book, so the Matapules for Fina Ulukalala are at a consecrated um, fencing or a space dedicated to Taliaitupo and they are continuing their plead on behalf of Saumailangi. If thy anger is justly excited by some crime or misdemeanor committed by any of us who are here assembled, we entreat thee to inflict on the guilty one the punishment which he merits and not let go thy vengeance on one who was born but as yesterday. For our own parts, why do we wish to live but for the sake of Finau? 
But if his family is afflicted, we are all afflicted, innocent as well as guilty. How canst thou be merciless? Does thou not see here, Finau, a descendant from ancient Tongan chiefs now in Pulotu? And did he not descend from Mumui, former Hau of Tonga? Why art thou merciless? Have regard for Finau and save the life of his daughter. Mariner continues, Finau was noted for his want of religion. The above words, therefore, were used as mere form and because no one dared to say otherwise. Every morning, as before stated, for about a fortnight, a hog was killed and offered to the god, and addresses were made similar to the above, and repeated five, six, or seven times a day. But the god seemed to hearken not to their petition, and the child daily got worse. In about fourteen or sixteen days, finding their prayers unavailing, they took her to another fencing in the neighborhood, consecrated to another god, Tuifua Pulotu. Here, the same ceremonies were practiced for about a week, with as little good result. Finau, finding his daughter getting worse instead of better, ordered his large canoes to be launched, and his wives, chiefs, matapules, in short, his whole household, to go on board. His sick daughter was conveyed into the canoe, which he and his wives occupied. I was also on board. We set sail for the island of Hunga, which belonged to a priest called Tupoutea, who was accustomed to be inspired by Finau's tutelar god, Tupoutoutai. On this island, several enclosures or fencing are consecrated to this god, to one of which his daughter was carried, and the same offering and the same kind of address was frequently made. But in this case, not before the consecrated house where the sick child lay, but wherever the priest happened to be, which was generally at his own house or at Finau's. It must here be remarked that those gods who have priests are invoked in the person of the inspired priest, wherever he may happen to be. Those who have no priests are invoked at the consecrated house by a matapule, as was the case in the late instance with Taliai Tupo, who has no priest. Tupo Totai was thus invoked every day, in the person of his priest during a fortnight or three weeks. Seated at the head of the Kava ring, the priest seemed much affected and generally shed a profusion of tears. To their earnest entreaties, he scarcely ever made any answers, and when he did, it was for the most part to the following effect. Why do you weary yourselves with entreating me? If the power to restore the woman rested solely with me, I would do it. Be assured it is all done by the will of the gods of Pulotu. Every day he visited the sick girl, frequently sat down beside her, took her hand and shed tears. During this time, the Mataapules frequently repaired to the house of the priest and laying Kaba before him, consulting with him privately. On one of these occasions, Finau not present, he told them that if they knew why the child was sick, they would not come thus to invoke him. He then declared in general terms that it was for the common good. Finau, being informed of this, addressed the priest at the consultation on the following morning, asking him, or rather the god within him, what he meant by the general good. If my spirits are oppressed, are not those of all my subjects so likewise? But if the gods have any resentment against us, let the whole weight of vengeance fall on my head. I fear not their vengeance, but spare my child. I earnestly entreat you, Tupotai, to exert all your influence with the other gods that I alone may suffer all the punishment they desire to inflict. 
To this the god returned no answer, and the priests retiring among the people, and the company separated. I'm so interested in finding out why this particular daughter is so important to Fina Unukalala because I'm sure he had many and um, this one particularly he uh, as we continue through the story he shows a whole other side of him um, that's just so different from other parts of the book and keeping in mind you know Mariner's only seeing this from his perspective and Maybe there are other daughters where the same kind of affection was shown towards them, but he just wasn't there at the time. So um, I'm keeping that all in mind as I'm exploring just the uh, many complex um, layers of Finao Ulukalawa, who is really, to me, the most fascinating character in this entire story. All right, continuing on with the book. As soon as Finau arrived at his house, his spirits no doubt much agitated, and his pride, in all probability much hurt, lay down on his mat and felt himself much indisposed. His illness hourly increased, and feeling, as he said, a secret presentiment of approaching death, his female attendants ran out and informed his chiefs and matapules, who, in consequence, immediately repaired to his house, and found him unable to speak. For as soon as he saw them, he endeavored in vain to give utterance to his ideas, and seemed choked by the vehemence of his inward emotions. At length, a flood of tears coming to his relief, he acknowledged the justice of the gods, but lamented greatly that he was about to meet his death on a bed of sickness, instead of going to brave it in the field of battle. After a little pause, he said in a calm but firm tone of his voice, I tremble at the approaching fate of my country, for I perceive plainly that after my death the state of affairs will be much altered for the worse. I have had daily proofs that the obedience of my subjects is not excited by their love but by their fears. Wow, nothing like being near death to really reflect on your humanity and realizing what a shitty person you are. <laughs> okay, I didn't mean to laugh. Several chiefs and matapules, who, owning to the crowd, were not able to get into the house but overheard what passed, went immediately to the priest of Tupototai and presenting him kava root and sat down before him. An old matapule then addressed him, stating that they had firm belief in the power which the gods possessed of inflicting what punishment they chose upon mortals. He entreated that the god use his influence with the other powers of Pulotu, that they might not take offense at what Finau has said in the morning, which was merely spoken on the impulse of the moment, when warmly agitated with sentiments of affection for his daughter, and not from any real disrespect to the gods. He supplicated him also to have regard to the general good of the islands, and not by depriving them of Finau to involve the whole nation in anarchy and confusion. The priest remained some time in silence, and was much affected. At length he announced that the gods of Pulotu had, for a long time past, debated amongst themselves in regard to the punishment they should inflict upon Finau, for the many instances he had shown of disobedience to religious precepts, and of exceeding disrespect for divine power, that they had at first resolved upon his death, but that he, Tupototai, having repeatedly interceded in his behalf, 
Some of the other gods also took his part, in consequence of which there arose a very violent dissension in Pulotu, not as he explained to them by actual fighting, for the gods are immortal and can neither be killed, wounded, nor hurt, but by urgent and potent arguments, which occasioned, he said, the late high winds and tremendous thunder, that they had consequently come to a resolution of saving his life, seeing that his death would be a greater evil to his people than to himself, and of punishing him in another and perhaps more severe way, namely by the death of his most dear and beloved daughter, who must therefore be inevitably taken from him. For as it had been decreed beyond all revocation that either he or his daughter must die, her life could not be saved without taking away his. As a sort of proof of this decree, he bade them remark that while Finau was at this time ill, his daughter was much better and comparatively full of life and spirits, which was actually the case. Tomorrow, he said, her father would be tolerably well, for the gods had not decreed his immediate death, but only a temporary illness to impress on his mind a sense of their power, and then his daughter would relapse and be as bad or worse than ever. The priest being now silent, the chiefs and the Matapules left him with a strong belief of the truths he had just told them. When they arrived at Finau's house, they found him somewhat better, but did not communicate what they had heard from this priest. This, however, was soon rumored among the other chiefs and Matapules in the king's cookhouse where they generally resort for kava, and which from custom has become sort of a rendezvous to pick up or retail news. I had been with Finau, my patron, father, and protector, during his illness upon coming to the cookhouse and hearing what the priest had said, went out of curiosity to Finau's daughter and was surprised to find her sitting up, eating ripe bananas and in very good spirits, talking at intervals to her female attendants. In the evening, Finau, feeling himself for the most part recovered, visited his daughter and found her much worse than, as he was informed, she had been in the morning. He now expressed his intention of passing the night at her house, which he accordingly did. When he awoke in the morning, he felt himself perfectly recovered, but going to his daughter's mat, he found, to his utmost grief, that she was worse off than ever. In the course of the morning, he went down to the seashore to give some orders respecting an alteration he designed in the sail of his canoe, in which he also employed himself to distract his thoughts, probably, the greater part of the day. At night, he again slept at the house of his daughter, and very early the following morning gave orders for all his chiefs, matapules, and attendants to go on board his canoes and gave directions for his daughter to be carried on board, then following himself made sail for the island of Ofu, with intention of consulting Alaivalu, the tutelar god of his aunt Doeumu. They arrived after two hours sail and immediately on landing went and presented Kavarut to the priest of that god. In the meantime, the sick child was taken to the god's consecrated house. The company being seated in the presence of the priest, a bowl of kava was presented to him, when the god said, It is in vain that you come here to invoke me 
upon a subject on which you have obtained all the information that is necessary for you to know. Tupoutoutai has already instructed you in the will of the gods, and I can't communicate anything further. The priest having said this, Finau and his attendants rose up and went their way. In the course of the afternoon, the supposed victim of divine vengeance was removed to several other consecrated houses in the same island, and was suffered to remain about half an hour or an hour in each, with a hope that she would derive benefit from the auspices of either of these deities, who were imagined to reside in those places. Removal, however, appeared to make her worse, and at length she was almost speechless. During the night, her father, with anxious solicitude, sat by the side of her mat, watching with sighs and tears the progress of her disorder. The next morning, which brought no sign of returning health to enliven the hopes of an afflicted parent, Finau gave directions to proceed to Makave, the place of Avau where Pupunu, Kakao, and several other great warriors were seized by Finau's orders. By the time they had gotten a little more than halfway to Vava'u, the poor child Saumailangi died. Immediately, all the female attendants began to lament in the most woeful strain, beating their breasts with violent agitation and exhibiting every mark of sorrow and despair. Finau sat in silence and dejection, weeping for the fate of his daughter. In a little time, they reached the coast of Ava'u and took the body to a large house called Powono on the Malae at Neyafu, followed by Finau, his wives, chiefs, matapules, and attendants, all habited in mats. The body was laid out on a fine and beautiful Samoan mat and then washed over with a mixture of oil and water, after which it was anointed with sandalwood oil. The king had determined in the event of his daughter's death not to bury her exactly after Tongan fashion, but partly according to that, agreeably to the custom of Samoa, and partly according to a fancy of his own. After the body was washed and anointed with oil, it was wrapped up in 14 or 15 yards of fine East Indian embroidered muslin, which formerly belonged to one of the officers of the Porto Prince. It was laid next in a large cedar chest, which had been made on board the Porto Prince for the use of Mr. Brown, and over the body were strewn wreaths of flowers, made for the purpose by her female attendant. I shouldn't be surprised by this, um, you know, Finau Ulukalala adopting some of the customs from Samoa because um, leading up to this point, you know, there's always been a close relationship between uh, Tonga, Samoa, Fiji, and especially with, um, you know, previous Tuitongas. Um, at Ulukalala's time, that the power and even the you know the sacredness of the Tuitonga was starting to fade, and they were no longer significant in Tongan society. But uh, prior to that, you know there was a strong relationship and kinship between intermarriages of Tuitongas in the past and um, Samoans, and so uh, and even at this point, you know the Tuikanokpolu line. Um, the matriarch of that uh, of the Tuikanokpolu is Samoan, and so I'm not surprised by this. And it's such in in line with Finau's character 
to just buck tradition and you know he's gonna do this funeral his own way and maybe at this point he's just so distraught and he's just like f everything i'm gonna do whatever the hell i want f the gods and f all of you <laughs> i can totally relate to that sometimes all right let's read a little bit more about this uh the funeral orders were now issued by Finau that nobody should wear mats okay so one right there you know we usually the tradition is we wear a tawala to funerals and there's a specific type of tawalas that we wear to funerals but at this particular funeral Finau said no tawalas but should dress themselves in new tapa as this is the Samoan custom and instead of ifi leaves around their necks, he ordered that they should wear wreaths of flowers. This was an idea of his own. My grandpa, um, one of the things I remember about him is uh, at a funeral, um, you know, great orator, uh, my late grandpa, Toamotu. Um, and one of the things I remember about him is at this funeral, he got up and he was asked to um, give just you know a little speech and he uh, went up to the front and he said that if any of you are wearing a kakala and if you are not the fahu you should remove your kakala right now and so there were people in the audience that were wearing like lays and things like that and um all looking nervously at each other and um and so you know moving their removing their kahoas that they were wearing and um i have always remembered that and when i go to funerals when i see people wearing a kakala and they are not the fahu i kind of give them a side eye i don't say anything but i i remember the the counsel um that my grandfather gave that day so, at this funeral for Sao Mailangi, who has a Samoan name, by the way, and I wonder if her mother may be a Samoan, I don't know. Um, that would be interesting to find out. But So, at this funeral, they are not to wear a taovala, but they are to wear ngatu, which is the Samoan custom, and then they are not wearing the ifi leaves, the chestnut, the leaves of the chestnut tree. Um, we talked a little bit about that in the last episode and when and why you would wear that in Tongan culture. And they instead were instructed to wear a kahoa made of flowers or like a flower lei. The chest was placed on two large bales of ngatu, in the middle of the house, and the body laid thus in state for the space of 20 days, during which time Moonga Otupo, Finau's principal wife, and all her female attendants remained constantly with the body. In the course of the first night, the mourners broke out in a kind of recitative like that on occasion of the death of Tupo Niua, but in a very imperfect way because Finau had ordered that no appearance of sorrow or sound of lamentation should be made. But in spite of this injunction, they occasionally could not restrain their grief, beating their breasts with every mark of deep-felt anguish. It is difficult to conceive the reason of Finau's whimsical conduct on this occasion, unless it were, as generally interpreted, an impious and revengeful endeavor to insult the gods by ordering those ceremonies not to be performed which were considered objects of religious duty on such sacred occasions. Every morning and evening, provisions and gaba were brought for the entertainment of those who attended to the body. 
On the 19th day, it was removed from the cedar chest and deposited in the model of a canoe about three feet and a half long made for the express purpose and nicely polished by one of Finau's carpenters, as this is the Samoan custom. By this time, the body had become much inflated and extremely offensive, but the office of removing it was performed by some natives of Samoa who were accustomed to such tasks. At Samoa, it is the custom to keep the dead above ground for a considerable length of time as above related, as the body during this period is apt to become very inflated, it is the duty of a relation to prevent this happening to a great extent by the practice of the most disgusting operation, that is, making a hole in some part of the abdomen and then the mouth being applied, the putrescent fluids, and spitting them into a dish. This is done out of love and affection for the deceased without any apparent sign of disgust. Did y'all hear that? Okay, so let me just repeat uh, what what was happening. So, um, um as her body was decomposing, as all human bodies do, it starts to fill up with gas. And so the body becomes bloated. And so the tradition at the time, and this was a practice that Mariner mentioned uh, is was adapted for this particular funeral uh, because there's no other recordings of funerals in Tonga done this way but uh, Finau Ulkalala wanted this performed at the funeral um, of his daughter so the body gets bloated it's been sitting out for how many days it mentioned I think two weeks or maybe even more than that and a um Ulukalala apparently had Samoan attendants, um, and so uh, the Samoan attendants would take care of this particular part of um, Saumailangi's funeral, where they made a cut in the body, in the abdomen, and then they would take turns sucking out the rotting flesh from her body, um, and then spitting it into some con- type of a container. Mariner mentions, uh, he uses the word disgusting. Those are his words, not mine. But I would definitely agree that this is not only disgusting, it is also very unsanitary. And this is how you spread diseases and things like that. But as he mentioned, this was done as an act of love. So I'm not going to judge. I'm just going to say that uh, I am so glad we don't do that. All right, continuing on with the book. During the whole of this day and the following night, the body enclosed in the canoe, with the lid closely fastened down, remained in the house. In the meantime, Finau issued orders for a general assembly of all the inhabitants of the island to take place the ensuing morning before the house, and nobody to be absent under any pretext whatsoever, not even that of illness. Early the following day, all the people, according to Finau's orders, assembled before the house where there was a large supply of provisions and kava for the conclusion of the ceremony. In the meantime, the body was conveyed to the Faitoka, where it was deposited inside the house without any pomp or form, not within the grave but on top of it, that Finau might see the coffin whenever he pleased and take it away with him whenever he went to a distance. 
On this extraordinary occasion, which the caprice of Finau rendered a scene of rejoicing rather than of mourning, after the provisions and kava were shared out, they began the entertainment of wrestling and boxing as usual at festivals. After the men had shown their strength and dexterity in these feats by single engagements, Finau gave orders that all the women who resided north of Mu'a should arrange themselves on one side ready to combat all the women who resided south of Mu'a, Mu'a meaning capital, who were to arrange themselves on the other. It was not a very rare occurrence for women to fight in pairs on occasions of rejoicing, but a general engagement like this with about 1,500 women on each side was a thing altogether new and beyond all precedent and quite unexpected at a funeral ceremony. The women, however, readily engaged and kept up the contest with obstinate bravery for about an hour without a foot of ground being lost or gained on either side. Nor would the battle have subsided then if Finau, seeing the persevering courage of these heroines, had not ordered them to desist, the battle having cost them several sprained ankles and broken arms. They fought with a great deal of steadiness and gave fair hits without pulling one another's hair. The men now divided themselves in like manner into two parties and began a general engagement, which was persisted in a considerable time with much fury, till at length that party which belonged to the side of the island on which Finau dwelt began to give away. Instantly he rushed from the house in which he was seated to reanimate his men by his presence and exertions, which he effected to such a degree that the opposite party in their turn fell back and were completely beaten off the ground. So again, uh, Finau Ulukalala breaking with convention and tradition and um, after his daughter's uh, funeral, he ordered that the people of Ava'u entertain themselves and also entertain him in boxing and wrestling. Uh, 1,500 women, Mariner recorded, boxing and wrestling with each other. And then following that were the men and even Finau Ulukalala himself joining in the fight and lending some courage to the people who resided on his side of Ava'u. Now, that would be a spectacle to watch, and that's the kind of funerals I like to go to. A funeral with good food, good company, and also boxing matches. Let's continue. This contest being now ended, and the company dispersed, each to his respective home, while Finau retired to a small house, which had been built since his daughter's death near Powono, the large house on the Malae, and there, feeling himself much exhausted, he lay down to rest from his fatigue. He had not been long in his posture before he found himself ill. His respiration became difficult. He turned himself repeatedly from side to side. His lips became purple, and his jaw seemed convulsed. From time to time, he groaned deeply and most horribly. All the bystanders were much affected. The women shed a profusion of tears, and the men were occupied, no doubt, with the thoughts of what commotion might happen in the event of his death, what blood might be spilt, and what battles won and lost. Finau, in the meantime, seemed perfectly sensible of his situation. He attempted to speak, but the power of utterance was almost denied to him. One word alone could be clearly distinguished, Fonua. 
Hence, it was supposed that he meant to express his anxiety, respecting the mischiefs and disturbances that might happen to the country in the event of his death. After waiting a little time and finding he did not get better, the prince, a young chief named Vuki, went out to procure one of Finau's children by a female attendant to sacrifice it to the gods, that their anger might be appeased, and the health of his father restored. They found the child in a neighboring house, unconsciously sleeping in its mother's lap. They took it away by force and retiring with it behind an adjacent Faitoka, strangled it as quickly as possible with a band of Ngatu. They then took it with all speed before two consecrated houses and a grave, at each place hurrying over a short but appropriate prayer to the god to interfere with other gods in behalf of Finau and to accept this sacrifice as an atonement for his crimes. This being done, they returned to the place where Finau lay, but found him with scarcely any signs of life, speechless and motionless. His heart, however, could be just felt to beat. In the meantime, he had been placed on a sort of hand barrow, which had been made on purpose during the time the child was strangled. Fancying there were still some hopes of his recovery, his friends carried him on this bier to different consecrated houses. Although he had almost beyond a doubt breathed his last with violent struggles about ten minutes before, he was first carried to the house dedicated to Taliai Tupo, where an appropriate prayer to the god was hurried over as quickly as possible. The corpse, for now it was perhaps nothing more, for there was no pulse at the wrist, and I, applying my hand to the region of the heart, found it had ceased sensibly to beat, was conveyed to the house of the god Tuifua Pulotu, where a similar prayer was preferred. Not contented with this, they next carried it to the grave of a female chief named Sinai Takala, and her spirit was in like manner invoked. Some hope still remained, and his body was carried a mile and a half up the country on the road towards Feretoa to the residence of the Tuitonga, their great divine chief at New Lolo. When arrived there, the body was conveyed to the Tuitonga's cookhouse and placed over a hole in the ground where the fire is lighted to dress victuals. This was thought to be acceptable to the gods as being a mark of extreme humiliation that the great chief of all the Ha'apai Islands and all of Ava'u should be laid where the meanest class of mankind, the cooks, were accustomed to operate. All this time Tuitonga remained in his own house, for his high character as a descendant of the gods rendered it altogether unnecessary and even degrading and improper that he should interfere in this matter. By this time his friends losing all hopes and being convinced that he was really dead brought the body back to Neyafu, where it was placed in the large house on the Malae. In the meanwhile, many chiefs and warriors secretly got ready their spears, which were tied up in bundles and put them loose, ready to be seized at any moment's notice, and selecting out their clubs, arranged them in order to be used on the urgency of occasion, expecting every moment the shout of war from one quarter or another. And if I just take a cursory view of the state of affairs, at this critical juncture, I find that such apprehensions were by no means groundless. How crazy is that? So after they bury his daughter, um, Finau Ulkalala starts to feel sick. And there's some notes here from the author. And I am referencing the Tonga book by Paul Dale. 
Uh, so in his notes, he says, from the symptoms reported here, it appears that Finau may have suffered a heart attack following the sudden and strenuous exertion of the sham fight. His previous illness some days earlier during his daughter's illness may have been the first sign of heart disease. So we see the great Finau Urukalala decline and then he expires. And the rest of this chapter is a long chapter, but it um, describes his funeral. So I want to save that for the next chapter. I mean the next episode because there's enough um, information there in this chapter to really just create a whole other episode and talking, uh, revisiting some of these ancient... Um, I, I guess I should stop using the word ancient because now we're in the 1800s and it's not so ancient anymore. And we're also at the age where uh, Donga is starting to encounter globalization. But in the next episode, uh, there are some funerary customs that we don't practice in Tongan culture anymore that Mariner describes as they are preparing for the funeral of the great chief and one of the things that's so fascinating and i'll end this episode with this is on his deathbed and in his last final moments um, and this is one of the reasons why you know final being the complex character that he is uh, and this just makes him so much more real and so much more human you know we read a lot about the um many atrocities committed in the name of war right but then he has a soft side he definitely expressed this during the death of his daughter and also in other um, instances one of the things of the moments that really stands out to me is that um, at the very beginning of the book he is with mariner and he is expressing just um in a way, lamenting uh, his sorrow and, and really feeling sorry and pity for this kid whose parents or whose mother is like halfway around the world and possibly thinking of him, you know. So those are the kind of tender moments where it really reveals that Finau Ulkal really has a soft spot, um, even though he's a very brutal and a very um, formidable warrior, Right. And then on his deathbed, his last words that he uttered, or the one last word he uttered was Fonua, talking about his love of not just, you know, Tonga, but also who's going to take care of Tonga after he leaves and what's going to happen to his legacy. And so, um, if anything, like let's say, you know, in uh, the magical world of Hollywood where I had this huge budget and turn this into a film, this would really be the story of Finau Ulukalala, because I just think he is such a compelling um, character. And he's also one of my ancestors, which makes it really cool. Anyway, so I'll save all that stuff for the next episode. And thank you again for tuning in. Um, I just got word from um, Anchor that, you know, where this podcast is hosted that um, I hit 20,000 um, listens to the podcast. So I just want to thank all of you for supporting. I know I do this all the time, but I can't be um, thankful enough just for all of the support and, you know, for for this little Fabuna project, like I mentioned before, uh, because I was very bored during the pandemic and I wanted to just find an outlet. 
oh my gosh before i end this i also just want to um send my love and my concern to those of you that are in new zealand um listening to the podcast because i know you guys are all in lockdown and the delta variant is just um spreading there like crazy um and you guys have done so well under the leadership of um jacinda arden your prime minister in managing and um and mitigating the spread of this virus and now the delta variant is there and it's so sad for me to see that the numbers are going up and also seeing the racism in the media and trying to uh, really blame um south auckland you know i see all of that from here and it's so sad because it's the same old thing that happened here and i think this is just an example of how white supremacy works the same all over the world and so i just want to send you all my love my best wishes to all of you i know what it's like to be in lockdown and it can be so damn depressing and so um hopefully this podcast will lift your spirits or just give you something to keep your mind occupied other than this goddamn coronavirus so much love to all of you and again thank you all for listening and uh, we will see you in the next episode. See you tomorrow.